Titus. Uh, really excited about this book. I think it's a, a really great reminder for us of some great things. But before, before we get started, um, I do want to give a quick announcement that on uh, September 16th, ladies, there is a, uh, an event at Bluff, uh, Bluff, Fir- oh my gosh, Bluff First um, with, uh, with T.J. Woodard, uh, Pastor T.J. Woodard. They're having a, uh, women's, a women's event. So if you're a lady and you'd like to go, um, they, the tickets are $10. I think you get um, a night of, they're going to have a whole bunch of different stuff that's going on there. So they wanted to make sure that they invited everybody to, uh, to come and attend. If you'd like to, ladies, um, they also invited our worship team to come and lead worship. So we're going to have a couple, couple people involved with that we do, like a lot of our freshwater stuff. We're going to come and, uh, and actually do, do some worship for them for that event. So you guys are welcome to come and attend. You can look it up on Facebook. Uh, just look up Bluff First. I think I also shared it on our Facebook page, our church's Facebook page. So if I did, yes, okay. So if you are connected with us, if you follow, if you like our Facebook page, then you just go there and uh, you'll be able to find the event. You can follow it from that place. But, uh, but I just want to throw that out there. Make sure you guys are aware. It'll be a good September 16th. Hey, next Friday up at the Eagle Sky Camp, my buddy, Bill Turner, he pastors the Baptist Church in Piedmont. They are having a big concert deal there with a group out of Cape, I think, and worship and all that. And he really wanted our church to come, but it's free burgers and all kinds of stuff. So if you want to go, I think I put that on Facebook, too. Or you didn't put it on I our didn't. Facebook. Okay. No, you don't have I need to, to do that. that. <laughs> Good thing. <laughs> but it's on the 19th, which I can't because I got a baby girl having her birthday. On the 19th. But other people can go. Yeah. That's okay. That's that's the announcement. So if you want to go to that, it's the 19th. I think that's this Friday, correct? Yeah, this Friday. So you're welcome to attend that if you want. You, is, is it on your Facebook you shared it, the information? You don't even know. Okay, so it's on a Facebook page somewhere that you can search somehow. So figure it out. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you, and that'll be great. So <laughs> so. Okay, well, you, you'll figure it out. So, uh, so this, this series that we're in is, uh, it's called From Titans to Titus. The reason why I named it From Titans to Titus is because of the context in which uh, Titus was placed, the place where he was at. Again, if you were here last week, then you would remember that, uh, that he was placed in a place called Crete, and he was uh, believed to originally been from Crete. He actually did some mission work with Paul in this location, and the way that they uh, orchestrated a lot of their belief system was, of course, because they were in uh, a very Greek-believing uh, territory that they believed in multiple gods. They call that polytheism. It's poly and multiple gods, or uh, theism, gods. So multiple gods was their belief system. They had all, all kinds of things. They also believed that their people group was the original people group that was on earth, and they could be elevated to status of gods um, depending on their way of life and their abilities and things like that. So they could become gods as they continue to move through. So, so Titus was placed in this location where people believed that they could be elevated to positions of God, godhood, and then they also worshipped all these different types of gods all around them. And so this, uh, this is a very interesting location that they, were, that they were in. They also believed that this was the birthplace of the majority of the gods, and with Zeus as the, as the preeminent man became god. So Crete was believed to be his burial place, and this is where they worshipped many of the gods. So there was lots of places um, that people would go and worship these gods, but Crete was actually a very huge hub where they would also come for trade, for commerce. They would come for different jobs. So there were lots of different people groups that would come to this location to be able to receive different monies, opportunities, and to grow 
as individuals. And so because of that, they also had lots of people who had different religious backgrounds and belief systems. And so there was a lot of different confusion as far as what the, uh, what the belief system should be. So they were kind of figuring out what feels best to them as they get to search the different philosophies and religions. And so this is where, this is where Titus is located. So Paul, as he's writing this, he's writing to Titus to say, hey, we're, we're wanting you to continue the faith and to continue doing these things. And because Titus was a young man, he wanted to encourage him on, on how he should be conducting uh, services, how he should set up his leadership team, how they should be living as believers and then living in society. So it's broken down in three different categories, and we can put this up if you could, Mr. Terry. The first one is, uh, chapter one is to the elders and leaders. So this is where chapter one uh, goes through. So if you missed last week's message, you can go back to our YouTube or Facebook page and, uh, and listen to that message. But last week I went over chapter one of the book of Titus. This week, chapter two, we're going to be going through the life of the believers. So what are we supposed to be doing as believers, and how should we be conducting our lives? And then the third chapter, which I won't be next week, like Dad said, I'm going to be out of town ministering in Wisconsin uh, at a church for their morning services and then for their youth service at, on, uh, on Sunday night. Uh, but then the next week after that, I'll come and I'll finish chapter three for us, and that will be uh, how we live in society. So how we deal with things in society and how we should be conducting ourselves outside of the community of the body of Christ, if that makes sense. And so the, uh, the title... Uh, or the, really the, the theme verse uh, for this whole entire book, it can be really found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And we're going to read that quickly. And I did that again last week. But just to, to remind you, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared that, often, or that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no. Everybody say no. no. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good and so this is really the theme the thematic section of this whole entire book is this is the whole entire purpose and reason why paul was writing to titus is so that we can have the realization of who Jesus Christ is, that we could be prepared as we wait for his appearing glory to come, and that we can also live productively so that we can spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are around. That's the entirety of the reason why he wrote this letter to Titus, so that he can do this and teach those who he's around to also do these things. I think this is a great, a great thing for us to consider in today's age. Even though that we're not in the same exact um, place that he was in, we find a lot of similarities in the situation that Titus found himself in. So uh, let's, go, let's go to just real quick. Um, we're going to go to verse 15 and 16, the last two verses of chapter 1, because this leads into chapter 2 for us. He says this. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. I'm going to read that one more time. Let's go back to verse 15, Mr. Terry. So again, to the pure, all things are pure. This is really important. Jesus, a lot of times in his conversations, and you can absolutely see this in, uh, in his his address on the Sermon on the Mount, everything that he, co that he uh, communicates to the people there has to do with the heart of man. Has to do with the heart. He says, yeah, you've heard it's, it's not good to commit adultery. It's against the law. But I say that if a man just looks at a woman with lust in his eyes, then he's committed adultery. 
He's like, you've heard it say not to murder somebody. Everybody said, amen, it's good not to murder people. Yes, okay. Uh, But he said, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, then you are found in sin. So everything that Jesus was, was moving towards, he was always going towards what is the intention behind the action that you committed. There are many times that an action that we, that we go through, especially if it's something that, is, that we deem sinful, that action was not the first time that you've been dealing with this. It all started first with a thought, then you reminisce on that thought and become something that you desire after, and then you continue on, and then it manifests itself in person. So a lot of the ways that we act and react to situations, that's, that's, that's not the first time that we will see that we missed the mark there. It's a behavior style or a thought process that we first have to deal with so that that action and behavior can be eradicated from our lives. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, so this is why it's important, and this is why Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. Because if you're pure in heart, then the thing that you do will be with pure intentions and it'll be done purely. And then if there's a misstep, then that could be easily dealt with uh, because your heart and your mind, th- your thought process is pure. So to the pure, all things are pure, but those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That's, that's hard language to listen to. I mean, he, he lays out some pretty definitive things and claims towards somebody if they don't believe. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Sheesh, it's crazy, right? It is, that's tough language. But what he's hitting at is that even if you are, think that you're a good person by actions, you just do good things, and that's it, that still means that your intention for doing good probably is so that you feel like you can be accepted in society and not because you're honoring God. So even so, even then, your, your intentions still are self-reflective and not reflecting of the one whose our image is made in. So even though, even the most, like, the, the best person who we find that's really good, but they don't know Christ, there's a lot of people who go to church who have great behavior and all these things, but they still don't know Jesus. They just are, they have great morality. They have great ethical principles. That's awesome. Good for you. you I mean, you're not going to go to jail. You'll, you'll live the most abundant life that you can probably have here without going to jail or having to be bankrupt or to go through all these different things. But when it comes down to it, for eternity, you will not be able to spend it with God because you haven't spent your time here on earth with God either. Okay, I need to move on because I'm in chapter two. That's chapter one. So. He says this in chapter 2. He moves on from, from this claim right here, from this language. He says this. You, however, speaking to Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. You know, this is something that we should expect to see from those who stand on stage, stand behind this pulpit, those who are teaching in these classrooms, and, and at the tables that you sit at whenever you are having lunch with people, whenever you are sitting at someone's house, whenever you're hanging out with someone in the car, whenever you're by yourself. You need to be able to be sound in doctrine. And that's, that sounds like very heady language. You're like, oh my gosh, now you're talking about having to go to school and I have to do all these different things and I don't want to go to seminary. You don't have to do any of those things in order to be sound in doctrine. 
th- those things are helpful for some people, especially if you're looking to, to, to be a leader in a specific capacity, then you feel like that's the training that you need to go through, and that's what the Lord is leading. The Lord put that on my heart, so I did that because I felt like that's what the Lord wanted from me. But it doesn't mean that that's what you need to do. What you need to do is you need to make sure that you're in the Word. The only way that you have sound doctrine is if you're actually reading the Word. There's an interesting study that was done by the Barnard Group. Uh, they're, they're researching a very large research facility, and they, they said that there are 2,000, uh, uh, sorry, that out of the people group of about 18 to 23 years old, they, they polled a bunch of people from this people group. And they said that, um, sorry, 15 to 23. So the screen time that they have per year is 2,767 hours per year they spend on screens, whether that's TV or that's phones. I'm going to say that again, 2,760 hours a year. If you break that down, that's 53 hours a week they're spending with phones or TVs. A full-time work week is 40 hours. So we have people from 15 to 23 years old that are spending almost 2,800 hours a year in front of devices. Looking at that same people group, thinking about spiritual content, they take in 291 hours yearly. That's five and a half hours a week, counting times that they sit in church. Put that in perspective. You're going from 53-hour work week (laughs) on screens to five and a half hours spending time listening to the gospel or reading their Bible pretty hefty difference the non-church going Christians spend 150 hours yearly did you know that you could read half of most of the books of the Bible in 30 minutes if you sit down for 30 minutes you can read through half of the majority of the books of the Bible like if I'm sitting down I'm just wanting to read the book of Genesis I can sit down for about 30 minutes and pretty much get through about half of that book. You can do that for most of the books of the Bible. It actually only takes, and this is even if you are a slow reader, okay? So this still goes into this part. They pulled it this way. They said this was very conservative. It takes 72 total hours to read through the entire Bible. If you sit there and you're not distracted by anything else, you're just sitting down and reading the Bible, it only takes you about 72 hours. You could even be extremely graceful for yourself and say it would take 100 hours if you really took some time. What, what is feeding you throughout your week? What is, what is feeding your mentality? What, what's feeding your children? What's feeding your household? If we're spending 53 hours a week on screens— and only five and a half hours actually seeking after the face of the Lord, or just listening to someone talk about the gospel, then then what are we doing? And, And we wonder why the way that we react and the way that we think tends to be so skewed from what the Word says. This is also very interesting. If you look down, if, if, and I've mentioned some of these statistics before, but if you're in the Bible one time a week, they pulled 40,000 people to figure this out that those who were in the Bible one time a week had actually negligible effect. It was actually worse for them if they were only in the Bible for one time a week. Do you know why this is? It's because they ended up in in religiosity. 
taking little bits and pieces and not getting the whole, the context of why that one scripture was written. And so if they're only in the Bible one time a week, a lot of times that will be a very faint. Anybody ever played the game Telephone? Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever? It's, it's a fascinating game. Okay, so, so the example would be that if I take everyone from this row, just going straight back, just everyone in the first part, and I told Nelson a paragraph-long story and expected him to tell Miss Lois that next paragraph and then expected her to repeat the paragraph that I told to Nelson and then gave that to Mr. Sherman, and then we continued to go back and back and back. By the time it got to the very back, to Mr. Dave, it would be completely wrong, and it would lead you in the wrong direction. It would give you the, the, the wrong information. There may be a couple things that are right, but the majority of it will not be great. And that's because that information is slowly disseminating as time goes on. And so if we're only in the Bible one time a week, then we will remember maybe for 30 seconds what we read. And then after we walk away, that will start to become more and more faint because we're not familiarized with the actual content. It's amazing how you can go to, to a hospital and you can, you can sit there and see the difference between someone who just got into working at the hospital, who just is fresh out of school, and then those who've been working for a very long time and are very seasoned in that. Some of the differences that they may have in comfortability or even just, just familiarity with different conditions that they may not have been exposed to when they were first in school. It's incredible. And you can see it because they've been around and they've, they've, they've gone through more and more times of experiencing and encountering these different situations that would give them the knowledge and the experience to go through and do things correctly, hopefully. Same thing across the board for anything. You take a kindergartner trying to play basketball for the first time, put him against LeBron James, no contest. Because of the amount of time and dedication that those two individuals have taken to go and compete. So one time a week actually was negligible. Sec two times a week, pretty much a very similar outcome. Three times a week, there's just a little blip, almost a little something that happens because it's like, I got a little spark. There's a little in there that you get. Now, four times a week, an absolutely significant change happens in their life. Feelings of loneliness drops 30%. Anger drops 32%. Bitterness in all relationships that you have drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Spiritual stagnation drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Sharing your faith jumps and skyrockets to 200%. Discipling others also jumps 230%. You know why that is? Because you're confident in what you're learning and what you're, what you're experiencing with the Lord. You can share your faith because you've, you're confident with what you're being able to learn. You're confident. You, you, you find this, this almost this spiritual excitement that you have to share with other people what's going on. It's very hard for us to want to share something when we don't feel like we're very knowledgeable in a specific area. I don't want to open my mouth very much when it comes down to someone who has a pretty good argument and I don't have very much base. But if I feel like I'm pretty experienced, like if someone comes up and asks me about the process of, of registering for classes in school, I can tell you all about that all day long. I've been doing that for almost 10 years now. And so I'm very familiar with that process of walking a student from the very beginning portions of finding out what they want to do to the part of actually registering, filling out their FAFSA, going through finding their classes, figuring out what their year, their, their timeline would be like. All that stuff is very simple for me because I've been doing it for a long time. But you ask me to go out and start farming, you are going to get a sad return on your crops from me. 
because I am not familiar with that process enough to be able to run an entire farm and to make sure. I, I couldn't tell you where certain aspects of machinery, how to even do that. And if it breaks down, then we're really in the dumps there because I'm, I'm going to have to pull out a, a, a huge like manual machine and have to try to hold the whole thing down. That's not going to be helpful for anybody either. And so you start to see if you're experienced and you start to go through and you learn more and more, you're going to find that you're going to be trained up more and you're going to be successful in knowing what correct doctrine is. And so when he tells, when he tells him, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So that is why something, uh, this is something that we should expect whenever we're standing, sitting here on Sunday mornings. You guys should be able to expect that sound doctrine is being delivered from here. You should also expect that as you're being taught in the ministry school with Pastor, Pastor Ken's oversight, that there's going to be sound doctrines taught over there. And then whenever you're actually in homes with one another and, and eating meals with one another, you don't have to worry about someone pitching you something that's completely chaotic and, 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 uh, and completely anti-gospel because what the information that they're getting is from an other source. But if you're in the Word consistently, then you're going to be able to know that what they're communicating to you is going to be something that is actually seeped in Scripture because they've spent time with the Lord. Yeah. So verse 2, he says this, and, and this is what we're going to do. I'll, I'll, I'll lay this out for you as well. Um, he communicates to five different people in this chapter. So we're going to go through five different sections, and by the grace of the Lord, I can do this in 18 minutes for you guys. So he goes through five different people groups. The first one is he goes through older men. The second one, he talks to older women. The third one, he talks to young women. And the fourth uh, person is he talks to young men. And then he goes through and talks to those who they call slaves in this. And we'll get to the difference between the biblical slave and our historical context of what slaves were. Because they were very different from one another. But those are the five people groups. Again, old men, old women, young women, and young men, and then goes to slaves and that. So this, these are the five people groups that we're going to break down this morning for this message. So in verse 2, he goes right for it. He goes, teach the older men to be temperate. Worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. The word temperate here, the ESV uses sober-minded. In Titus 1-7, again, he, he reminds them that, that as an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness. This is sober-mindedness right here, not given to drunkenness. Again, drunkenness, being drunk, not given to that aspect. Not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Those things, not to be overbearing or quick-tempered. Given to drunkenness, not violent or pursuing dishonest gain. Teach older men to be temperate. We cannot let the years of encounters and the years of things that we've, in, that, that we've experienced be something that dictates our lack of sober-mindedness. We cannot just throw our hands in the air and just give up on things because it seems like society is going to crack. We cannot, we cannot see things that way. Us young men, we need to look up to older men who have sound wisdom. They've gone through things in life, and they're able to have the testimony of Jesus, which is the faithfulness of God in their life, and to show the long-suffering of what happens whenever you consistently keep with the cause of Christ. That's something that's, 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 that's valuable for young men to see. He talks about endurance. Endurance at the very end of that. Having endurance, the Greek here is enduring perseverance. So you don't just endure and you just wait. This is something you persevere in. You have to put your hand to the plow. You have to actually move and do work. You cannot just sit back and wait for things to happen. We have to be proactive as Christians. We cannot be reactive all the time. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character of hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been giving who has been given to us. If we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit and we're reading the word and we're interacting with our relationship with God, then we will know that we can faithfully persevere. And in that perseverance, we will see that God's faithfulness consistently endures the storm. And so we need to have, have older men, those of you guys who are older men in the faith and who are seasoned, we need to have you guys strong in the Lord, strong in the word, and great anchors of the faith so that we can always look back and look up to you to you guys and know that you have stood the test of, of trials. You have stood the test of, of all the things that the enemy can try to thwart you away from following after Christ. And in your perseverance, we can see that I now can also persevere, and I can also go through these things, and I can receive sound, sound teaching. Then he says in verse 3, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. I love that he goes to both the older men and older women and says, do not be drunkards. We cannot be subject to slavery, to substances. This goes for alcohol. This goes for, uh, for drugs. You can apply this to, to even like what we were talking about with content and television. All, we, all, all that's happened now is that because you're nearing retirement years or maybe you're in retirement years, that now you sit back and you don't do anything and there's no contribution that you can have in the church or society, and that is false. There's so much wisdom and so much that we can gain from people who have had that experience and who can be able to show what it's like to follow after Christ. This is why Paul was writing to, t to Titus. He also writes to Timothy and explains a lot of the same principles um, to him. These, these young men could look up to Paul because Paul was able to stand in endurance and all the things that he'd encountered. In the book of Ephesians, he was in jail getting ready to go and speak to people who were going to persecute him. And he was excited about the opportunity to stand in front of these people who were trying to put him to death. And he was asking for strength and for faith to be able to stand up and to boldly proclaim the gospel. That was what he was more worried about, is being able to represent Christ, rather than, well, I'm, I'm not guilty of anything that, that, that I'm in prison for, and so I should receive justice for this. He said, no, I want them to receive the, the gospel, the powerful nature of what the gospel of Jesus Christ can do in their lives. And this is the way that the Lord has paved for me to actually stand in front of each and every one of these extremely important individuals so that I can deliver this message. That's the guy that is writing this letter to these two young men, T Timothy and Titus, and encouraging them that you need to teach people to have this kind of sound faith. And so he teaches, he tells the, under, the, the older women, he says, don't be slanderous. Slander in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, it says, says that wives must li likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. So a slanderer is someone who is a false accuser, which is something that ends up happening a lot of times if we're not preoccupying ourselves with furthering the message of Jesus Christ. And then if we have an issue with somebody, this is very biblical. You go into the book of Matthew, and he says that if you have an issue with somebody, a brother or sister, you need to go to that person and communicate with them one-on-one -on -one first. 
communicate with them what's going on, what you agree with or don't agree with in those places. And then you can actually have a healthy dialogue that will hopefully bring you guys closer together. And then if you still can't figure out what's going on there, then you bring somebody else into the conversation as a mediator to help out with maintaining to where there's not a lot of extreme conflict to where there's violence in the midst of that. We need to be level-headed in there. We have too many people that are so quick in church to jump around and talk about what they don't agree with with other people who are in the church and never to their face. It's never to their face. It's always to someone outside that they feel like they can join an allegiance with to then start talking junk about that person again. And then it continues to seep, and it's like a poison that ends up leaking out into all of the body. And then sooner or later, you end up having a, a, a divided body of Christ because you're alienating people from receiving what could be helpful correction. Or maybe you're the one that's in the wrong, and you're the one that actually has to deal with some things internally. And so if we, if we allow our, 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 our wise older congregation to pursue this type of behavior, then guess what? The people who are sitting in your household who are going in and out— Come in and out with as, as young people, they're listening to this behavior on and off consistently, and they're going to take that and they're going to develop it and they're going to run with it even more. Because a lot of times, what we allow in moderation ends up being the next generation's bondage. And so, we cannot be these people in the body of Christ. And there is so much wisdom in, in looking at this and saying, if you're, an, if you're an older person in the faith, then you should be someone who we can look up to as younger men and women in the faith and say, I would love to make my life near after yours. Because, not because you're just so awesome, but because you're chasing after Jesus. And I admire the amount of, of, of courage and the amount of steadfastness that you have in pursuing after Christ that I want to model my life after the way that you've modeled it because you love Jesus so much. That's, that's got to be the way that we live. That's got to be the way that we, that we endure. That's got to be the way that we act in community. We cannot be divided between generations. That's not the way that the gospel is, is progressed. The gospel is not just for one generation. It's for each generation. There's blessings that actually occur as you train up the next generation, as you love the former generation, as you have compassion for the entire body of Christ. This is the way in which we should live. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, he says, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Jesus says that we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That all these things will be added. We have to be able to pursue the things of Christ. We have to be able to know what the word says. We have to be diligent. Now, I'm not saying that you have to sit down for 12 hours a day and read through as much of the Bible as you can just so you can check that off and say, okay, well, fine. Well, Pastor Zach said I need to read through the Bible. I'm, I'm doing it. And we need to be diligent in actually being able to absorb it and then apply it to our lives. We need to know why certain things were said. Otherwise, we're taking a lot of little bitty pieces of scripture out of context so that we can fit the narrative that we believe should be true. We shouldn't read the Bible to validate my feelings. That's not the way that I should be doing. I should actually let the Bible dictate what I should feel. That should be the way that we go through. Too many times we're looking for, for the Bible to make an excuse for whatever it is that we're, we're looking to get into. And that is a very inadequate way of looking at Scripture. Very inadequate. 
And then so, so they say at the end of verse 3, uh, I'll just read verse 3 again. It says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So what is good to teach? Verse 4 says this, They can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home and to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, this could be a really tentious co- uh, conversation, especially in, in the world that we live in right now. Because there's a lot of people who could take this scripture and they could, tr- they could try to oppress their wives or they can try to oppress women. And this is not the language that Paul is using right here. This is actually empowering to the, to the wife. This is empowering to the women. Actually, if you look at the words, uh, the phrase subject to husbands, it could be equivalent to the, um, uh, to the meaning that they could be the stronger sense of their own husbands as opposed to all men. So subjectively, instead of being subjected to all of the people that are all around, they're able to come as one with their husband, and now as a unit, they're able to progress forward, and they're able to be successful for the gospel, for the cause. There's a beautiful imagery, and I, I've, I've mentioned this before, but if you look at, at, uh, at the word Eve, um, it's, it's really cool. There's, there's, a, there's a sense, I'm not going to get super technical with you guys, but there's a sense as you go through the, defi- the definition that it actually deals with um, almost like adversarial perspective. So an adversary to the husband. Not in the sense where they're against one another, like fighting one another, but it's in the sense of just like if you have... Um, if you have someone who's trying to, to fire off a shot of, it could be like a bow and arrow, it could be a gun or something like that, and there's no resistance, there's no, there's no ability to, to sit there and focus on it, that it's very hard to be precise. If you're just kind of going up and trying to shoot and hit a target and going like this, it doesn't work very well. But if you have stability and you have the ability to put tension between two objects, you can actually have a much easier process of guiding through and having a much more successful shot. You can actually hit the target a lot easier because there's some resistance on either side that brings you to it. So an adversarial, as far as the point of you actually bring balance to one another in the sense of helping one another to progress forward. The word sin is actually to miss the mark. If you go through and you look at, uh, look at the old uh, medieval definition of sin, it's, it's an archery term to where when you go to hit the target, you miss the target. And that means, oh, I've sinned. I missed it. But when you pick it back up and you hit it again, bam, now you hit the target. So the sin is to actually miss the mark in shooting for righteousness. But when you actually are in community, in relationship, and this goes along with if you're married or if you're just in community, in relationship with one another in the body of Christ, you can have some adversary, some conflict that's helpful so that you can actually line up and you can hit the target of righteousness much easier because you're allowing that resistance to slow you down and not just willy-nilly start firing around and hoping that you're going to hit the target. So community with one another is supposed to be something that helps guide the shot and then you can nail righteousness the way that we need to seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness and the kingdom is something that's not just a castle the kingdom is all the people that's involved inside of the kingdom with God at the head amen okay I'm moving I'm moving I promise similarly verse 6 encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them an example by doing what is good In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This is great. Uh, A church father, a Christian, 
sorry, Chrysostom said this. He said, nothing is so hard at this age as to overcome pleasures and follies of life. This example that, that Paul is talking to Titus about has to be shown. Speaking to the young man, this has to be shown. This example of going through and living life has to be shown. So that means to the older generation, we have to also see the fruitfulness and the faithfulness that following after God actually dictates. The good things that come from that. We're in the show me state, right? It's like show and tell. So if we have a lot of people that are, that are showing very different things than what they're speaking, then people are not going to want what the church has to offer because there's a lot of people who are just frowning and furrowing the brow and pointing fingers at other people because they feel like they need to have an opinion about something. It's a lot easier to follow after someone who you can see their life reflects the words that they're speaking. And so this is important. This is important what he, why he says this to the young men. He says, to the young men, you need to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This is a huge tactic of the enemy to break away the influence of fathers in the household and men in the community of, of believers. If you notice, there's a lot of, of missing men within the church. I'm not just talking about church here. I'm talking about within the whole body of Christ. There are a lot of, a lot of moms who are bringing their kids to church, and their dads are staying home and not doing a whole lot. There are, there are a lot of homes that, that have brokenness. Uh, many of you have come from broken families and broken households. And, uh, and the enemy's tactic is to drive away a great example of a father figure. Especially because Jesus calls God Father. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so if, he can, if the enemy can break the idea of a good father here on earth, then he can thwart the idea of a good father who's also in heaven. And so we need to have the unity again within the family, within the household, within the representation. I mean, uh, uh, we can't fix the problem of, of every broken home, but we can really pursue after Christ in our relationships and that the brokenness that can be restored can be restored. The brokenness is not something that I can fix. It's something that Christ fixes. And that's something that we can see in pursuing relationship with the Holy Spirit and allowing him to lead and guide us in that process. And for those who don't have the, the access to maybe a great father or maybe a, a household that's together, they can at least have a representation of people who are in the church who do have a great, great grasp on reality of what a good father and mother inside the home looks like. And they can provide it for those kids. They can provide it for those people. If you haven't had that in your life, then you can become that now for the another generation. And you can show them what it looks like. You know, we're, we're, we're subject to a lot, of, a, lot of the, a lot of the lifestyles that happened in the, in the peace and love generations of flower power and all that stuff where um, free love was something that was rampant all throughout society. And, you know, they had, had their fun and, 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 and giggles and things like that. But now we're seeing the effect on families in the next generation. With more and more and more and more and more families that are broken, more and more and more families that have no representation of both parents being able to be faithful believers in the gospel and, and pursuing after Christ. And then now that generation is being, uh, is, is really affected by what's happening now in this current younger generation. So we're seeing, we're seeing a, a, a kind of an overflow effect of 
of a lack of following after God's design for our lives and our families. And so we're seeing a lot of people who have absolutely no identity because they're so confused on how they're supposed to act and react and live in their life because they don't have any structure from their parents. A lot of parents are wanting to be their friends instead of be their parent. Trust me, I work in school systems all across the region. I'm in at least 10 different school districts and see lots of different students in all different types of areas. And let me tell you, there are a lot of confused children out there. And there's a lot of broken families. There's a lot of brokenness all around the area that can be fixed if we pursue after Christ and we model and represent what it means to truly follow after Jesus. Okay, we're almost done, I promise. Verse 9 says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So slaves and households, this is, this is what con constituted a household and what, what its importance is, is the natural household actually extended to cover not only blood rel relatives living together, which is like parents, children, grandparents, or other needy relatives, stuff that we're very familiar with in our society, but it actually extended to other dependents, especially the household, what they called slaves. At the time, the boundaries expanded yet further, too. This was regarded as a basic unit of the Greco-Roman society, and on its stability rested the stability of the entire state. So it wasn't just your family that lived in your house. It was your family and some extended family. And then also you had people who worked for the, for the ground, for the estate. A lot of these people who were heads of the household, they were very wealthy, and they, had, they were business people. They had lots of finances, and so instead of them living... Uh, outside the quarters, a lot of them lived inside of the compound that they had and for the business that they ran. And so many of these, what they called slaves, were not really slaves, they were employees. And their process was that they got paid for the services that they rendered, and a lot of times they did it for like maybe seven years at a time. Um, sometimes they did it to pay off debt, and they would be subject to that, to that person for seven years, and that person paid off their debt. Other times it was that they chose to just be in that household because they really enjoyed the service of that individual. And they liked being in their, uh, in, their, in their care. And so there was a lot of people that could be subjected into a household. And so when you talk about slaves, he's talking about you as an employee. So we treat these as like, I'm at Three Rivers College. That's where I work at. And so I need to be diligent and be faithful in all the things I do. Not cut corners, but I need to do things as, as well as I possibly could. So that whenever people look at my work, they can actually glorify God and say, I, I can't actually talk any, any kind of junk against this guy because he's doing the best that he can. And he's actually thriving and succeeding because he's putting forth his best effort. Because everything that I do is as I'm doing unto the Lord. So whenever they look at me, they could actually glorify God. And they could say, hey, there's something about the way that you work and your thought process and your systems that is a little bit different than the way that other, other people work. That's the way that we need to be living. And then he says in verse 11, and we'll, we'll go back through these last, these last verses, and this is why I wanted to highlight this. It says, for all five of these people, the older men, older women, young women, young men, and employees, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Then he ends with saying this. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke 
with all authority. Do not let anyone despise me. Last week, we went over standards of, of people who are going to be in leadership and people who are leading. Those are great principles we can also apply to our lives. This week, really going through the different generational models that we see. I would encourage you to, to, to ask the Lord if there's any area in this passage, in this passage of scriptures, that you have been lacking in or that you need some, some, uh, some sanctification, further sanctification in. I would dare to say that every one of us could raise our hand and say there are areas that I can improve on and there are things that I felt conviction with or maybe felt a little aggravated that you mentioned them in your message. That's okay. I'm fine with you being aggravated with me a little bit because it is the gospel that transforms us. It's not me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, only a, I'm, I'm only Zach, okay? I'm only a person. But it's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's your relationship with the Holy Spirit. That is the thing that can change and transform you. Because after we leave here this morning, I'm not going home with you. I'm not spending all day with you. And I'm not in your mind to think of, to know what the thoughts that you have every single day. But the Holy Spirit is there. And so he's the one that, he, that needs to be your conviction barometer, not me. If things jump out at you throughout this message, it's because the Holy Spirit is convicting you of these things. And that means that this is something you can work towards by reading the word and by, by pouring in time with prayer. And asking the Lord how he can improve these areas of your life. Don't shy away. It's somebody that you know within the community. Happily challenges, or joy, I'll say joyfully challenges, your thought process or your behaviors. It should be something that brings you joy. Notice I didn't say it doesn't, that this is something that should bring you happiness. This is something that should bring you joy. Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And if you meet one another with love, then you've already knocked off the two fruits of the Spirit that we've seen. I believe that the fruit of the Spirit is, is, a, is a progressive element that we see in our lives. If you don't have love, none of the other stuff matters. Because love is the basis of all the things that we should be living our lives by, by the love of God. So we'll have love, then you have joy, then peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All these things will line up with one another if you're based in the love of Christ. Which means that if you're based in the love of Christ, then you're based in his truth. And you're not just fluffing around with all kinds of different language, hoping people feel good about themselves. It's not about feeling good. When you're met with, with conflict or if someone challenges your thought process, it doesn't feel good to be challenged in those moments. But it's great, and it's for our benefit. And actually makes it to where you can live a much healthier life afterwards. We need to be excited about conflict in the sense of knowing that, thank you, Jesus, I'm going to grow in the midst of this. Whether I'm the one who is right or the other person is the one who is right. The right thing is not who wins the argument. The right thing is that we get to pursue Christ even more. And then we get to grow with one another. Because guess what? We could both be wrong in the middle of our conflict. And the Holy Spirit can reveal some things as we pour through the word. But it's very hard for us to challenge one another and to, and to find fruit, fruitfulness in our relationship if we don't know the word. Because then we're being, we're, we're offering only knowledge from our experiences. And experiences don't always lend to truth. Experience lends to experience. I got hurt in church. That's great. It's not the whole entire church body that hurt you. It was an experience that you had with a specific uh, a specific group, a specific church name, a specific person, maybe just in that church. Maybe not, may not have been everyone. It could have just been one person 
and you're frustrated, and then so you've written off the entire body of Christ across the globe because of one person that, that offended you. That's not biblical. Well, you don't know what I've been through. I don't. We can talk about it. But I guarantee you it wasn't crucifixion. Jesus went through crucifixion, and he still chose to love us in the midst of all that stuff. He chose to go to the cross. He didn't want to. Let that mess with your theology a little bit. He didn't want to have to do it. He asked Jesus whenever he was, or he, sorry, he asked God whenever he was at the garden, if it is possible, let me not have to do this, because this is going to really stink. This is going to be really bad. It's not going to be great. Sweat and blood, because he was so stressed out about having to do that. But he still chose love over the difficulty he was about to walk into. And you say, well, he's God. Yeah, but he was God in flesh. Flesh, he felt everything that we feel. So I want to challenge you this morning. Pour over this scripture a little bit, this passage. Ask the Holy Spirit before you start reading it. Lord, is there anything in my life that I need to start to work on right here, right now, today? Is there anything that needs to improve in my behaviors? Am I representing you in the way that Paul is, is telling Timothy, or sorry, telling Titus? Am, am I representing you in this way? In each category, everyone in here falls under the category of either of the five people groups that I talked about. Most of you fall under two categories. Because I see a lot of you guys in here that have jobs. Ask the Lord, where is it that I can honor you more? And then how can I connect with the other generation and the other people that are in those other people groups that we've talked about too? We need to be faithful. And faithfulness isn't just about attending church service. If that's your definition of faithfulness, then you don't know Jesus very well. You don't. If I can tell you something, Jesus is much better than a church service. He's much, much better than a song. He's much greater and more powerful than a program. He could do a lot more for your life if you actually let him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you so much for your word. Lord, I ask you that, that, that you challenge us, that you convict us of things that we're struggling with and things that we don't do well. Father, we celebrate this morning those who have, who have done well, who have run the race with, with great expectation of, of your movement in their life. Thank you for those who have, who have been great models, who have done, done great things for us, uh, in the body of Christ because they pursued after you. Thank you that we have the opportunity as each one of us have breath in our lungs to further continue to spread the gospel, to further represent you, to, to correct things that, we, that we're going through that, that are not quite correct, that we can pursue after you with, with holy expectancy that you're going to actually do something in our life and that it will also benefit other people. Father, let us not be selfish in the reasons why we actually pursue after you, but let us also know that you loved us so much that you have given us the ability to go out and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to those. But Lord, let us also deal with what is first in our homes. Let us deal with what is first in our minds and in our hearts so that as we speak about your word, as we, as we represent you, Father, that it would be an adequate representation of your gospel and it will not be a self-serving gospel, but it will be one that has compassion and love for those who are hurting, who are wounded, or who are lost and broken. So we give you all the praise, honor, and glory. We thank you for your patience in our life. 
And we ask you that you continue to move. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. I love you guys. If you need prayer, feel free to come up. We'd love to pray with you for anything. Um, otherwise, have a great rest of your Sunday. Go and eat with somebody. And, uh, and we'll see you guys either Wednesday or Sunday.